All right, we are going. So I'd like to thank Tony Duke for agreeing to share his transplant story. It was more of being voluntold, I think, than... Definitely, definitely. I was quite happy to go out for a ride. <laughs> on a scooter, not a horse. Yeah, because I'm an organ donor too. <laughs> so the purpose of these interviews is for people to share their stories, and not just the successes, but also struggles, because that's the thing that transplant patients know, is that there are a lot of struggles um, that um, people in general often don't see and don't understand the ongoing nature of maintaining a transplanted organ. So thank you, and your story will help others better understand what's involved in transplant, both before and after. So I'd like to focus on the different stages of the transplant journey um, and talk about your biggest struggles and success and maybe any tips or advice for people as um, we go through those stages. So before someone gets a transplant, you have to go through an assessment. Um, you meet with the transplant team. Um, there's all, obviously the waiting list. And then after the transplant, there's recovery in the hospital. Um, there's a rehabilitation time. And then the first couple of years are... Um, tough. Tough. <laughs> the time you are finding your new normal, which translates to tough. So if you think back to before transplant, um, one of the first steps was when you were sick and getting yourself referred to transplant. How did the referral to the transplant team happen for you? The initial uh, thing happened because I was having increasingly panic attacks or what we thought were panic attacks and it turned out that they were combined with this lung issue that I had so I couldn't breathe and as the breathing became more difficult especially if adrenaline had kicked in like you know if I had sort of jumped out the way in traffic or something or someone had you know jumped a red light anything that triggered the adrenaline triggered this um, pumping of my lungs to try and catch my breath and it became more and more difficult to do that so I went to see um, a respirologist doctor and um, so they were said, well, basically you've got asthma. Well, now that after two years that developed into, oh no, you've got lung problems. And um, if you can get yourself healthy, which was a bit of a joke, if you get yourself healthy, we'll consider referring you to a transplant unit. Oh, okay. Well, that resulted in a wait of two years before we were actually able to access that and apply um, so the local, our local GP was the one who managed to push that so that uh, we could put our application in and go down to be assessed for pre-transplant. Right. So it did involve a specialist, a referral from a specialist. And then in our case, the specialist needed some prodding from the GP. Um, and I think, too, it's helpful for people to know that um, we bounced around from GP to GP um, within a clinic. So we found a GP when we first moved at a walk-in clinic, and then he went to a private practice, so we followed him there, and that was good. Yeah. Um, and then we bounced. There were three or four doctors in that practice, and we bounced around um, 
just because you would phone for an appointment and the GP that you were supposed to be seeing wasn't available and they'd put you with a different one. And so there were a couple of times where you'd suggested transplant and been poo-pooed and told you wouldn't be a candidate. Yeah, the first time that I'd mentioned to them, um, just lightly because I didn't know what the procedure was or whether it was even possible, I asked if I could have a a lung transplant and the doctor I saw at the time said there was no way I was going to get one I was too old well at that time I think I was 57 so apart from feeling really ill and worried that something serious was going on I was also um, belittled by being told I was too old Yeah. and so I started to feel as if I was quite worthless Um, you know why bother looking after me? I'm 50-something. That's right. I'm done. You've lived your life, old man. Just go in the corner. Yeah, and yeah. And it was like a case of, you know, no, you can't have one, and it's probably your own fault anyway, so go away yeah. and use an inhaler. Right. So that was a, a struggle. Yeah, I think that brings up another issue for me now that we're post-transplant that I'm quite aware of and been focusing on lately, and that is um, we've heard people say, you know, and you had this transplant through no fault of your own. There's still a lot of uh, blaming of people, um, and which I think is a whole, maybe it's a whole other interview of blaming the victims. But um, with regard to not being able to get the referral straight away, I think um, from what we've learned as we went through this journey, I started taking a harder look Online, So our transplant authority does list um, the criteria, criteria for referral, but those referral criteria for lungs aren't that well laid out. Um, So I think what's happened in our case, I mean, we bounced from one doctor to another, so there wasn't a long-standing relationship, which is critical when you're moving forward with a transplant. Um, And also, things change rapidly in the world of transplant. And not all doctors are up to speed on all things. And so they go by what they learned in school, and they maybe didn't learn anything about transplant in school. And then even if they take time to go to the transplant website, the criteria for lungs isn't really well defined. And so, you know, what do they say? Can I swear on this? (laughs) Shit, Shit rolls downhill. The patient is the one at the bottom of the pile, and you get, you know, papooed about what you had to suggest, right? Yeah. There's been a number of times throughout our journey where we've explained to people, I'm just thinking of one time when you needed meds in the hospital, pain meds, yes. and the nurse was reluctant. Well, she was bloody stubborn. Well, give yeah, it, it was a guy, but he was reluctant to dispense them um, or question, or that was the problem. He didn't want to question the doctor um, blah blah blah. Anyway, we sort of explained to him how the system works and where's the who's going to have to make that decision. Well, why don't you phone them? <laughs> Hand me the phone and I'll phone them. Right? Is there's medicine is a real strict hierarchy in some cases, and there are sometimes people who are really hesitant to go up the chain of command, and sometimes you've got to, you know, push them to. Go yeah. up the chain of well, I think you've got, there's two things there from my point of view. Is one is that 
because it's a process, during the process, the lungs deteriorate incrementally. Right. So you don't just get gradually sicker and sicker. You get gradually sick, and then you get sick quicker and quicker and quicker right. as things go on. It worsens all of the time. And the other thing is that although we, we sort of bounced around amongst doctors, it's not with our own volition that we left doctors. It was because the way the system pushed us around from different people to be seen. So mm-hmm. I was quite happy to stick with one doctor, but unfortunately the system didn't permit that. And the other thing is that when one sees a doctor, if you don't have any consistency of doctor, you don't have a consistency of treatment, plus you have to repeat over and over again to each new person exactly what you're going through and that way each of them has a different opinion but when you eventually are able to strike up a relationship with a doctor they can do an awful lot to push things forward but you have to work I think very very hard both the potential uh, recipient and the caregiver have to work very hard at establishing relationships with the doctor and with various consultants and specialists that one gets to see. Um, So I don't think going in sort of mob-handed and being a bully to demand that you have this work done is going to work. You need to get your own background information together and be aware of what you can and can't expect from the service. And one of them is you're not going to get an instant transplant much as it would be nice, because they have to do all the tissue typing and there has to be uh, a legitimate organ available for whatever your transplant is going to be. Right. Well, and I think we got really lucky, having said we kind of bounced around. Um, In this particular practice, we landed with the main doctor who's the one under under whom the others worked. It was sort of his practice. And he's a no nonsense guy like when we landed with him he took the bull by the horn so it wasn't just you know about establishing a relationship which you need to do but you also need to do that and look for the helpers like Mr. Rogers said like this GP went to bat for us on a number of occasions he didn't take much guff out of the system and if if there was pushback he from the system he pushed back harder and louder and with a lawyer like he there was <laughs> so I, I make reference to the lawyer he's with all of this opioid um, stuff going on in British Columbia and elsewhere um, he's actually engaged a lawyer to argue for the rights of doctors um, he, he really doesn't take much guff so when he said he would do something or make sure a referral went through or you know he meant it and he followed up I I think that's an important thing too is that there was many times we felt like shouting at someone in the system like it didn't matter who, we just wanted to shout at someone, we needed to be heard but of course if we'd have done that we'd have got nowhere prior experiences taught us that you just get someone's back up particularly me, they hang up on you (laughs) If, if you are able to establish that kind of a relationship and that doesn't mean bowing down to everything you know stand up for your rights but if you're able to establish a relationship with a doctor they will uh, as they say take the bull by the horns and when they shout at someone in the system the mm-hmm. system starts to listen yeah. but they don't listen to us because we are only 
potential patients. Yeah. But the doctors know what they're talking about and they know more than the administration people do yeah. who tend to be somewhat rule-bound. Yes, but yeah. We're trying to couch our words. There was yeah. a particular incident where we had... Um, Tony had trouble getting oxygen, and um, there's a program that's not well regarded. Um, it, we just thought it was us, but in the intervening three years, we've learned we are not alone. Um, and yeah, so yeah, once he, he prescribed oxygen, then people came out of the woodwork from this program and swore up and down they weren't there to deny coverage for oxygen, which is what exactly happened. And. After I tried and failed and cried and yelled and they hung up on me, yeah, our doctor phoned and he reported back to us that he'd had a lovely 20-minute conversation with this particular organization and the first 18 minutes were civil and that indeed we were now covered. So sometimes it does take um, someone with more authority than you and that's the sad thing as the patient where we're hoping that we're moving into an era where patients are seen as partners in your health care and we may not be experts on diseases but we have a right to you know be part of the decision making process and have things explained to us absolutely expect services i mean i guess that's comes down to expectation management you learn pretty quickly with a chronic illness that your expectations of the healthcare system far outweigh what the system is able to deliver and so you find yourself having to check your expectations at the door sometimes yeah and, and chronic soon becomes acute uh, yeah. you know getting to the point where doctors uh, GP was good and also one of the locums who would do um, house calls towards the end of the the process and the locum that came round uh, you know I said well how's it doing I managed to speak that many words how am I doing and he said well you know it's imminent it's I suggest you get your house in order right now I mean like he was giving me a week or two to be around so in amongst all the stress and strain of trying to work your way through the the system that we have which is a brilliant system but trying to work your way through it at that same time you've simultaneously got me as the lung patient dying and death is getting near quickly more and more quickly and my caregiver Beth is watching this happen and she's the one that's trying to cope with all of the bureaucracy and getting me to appointments, getting me to the hospital and so basically she became a 24 hour a day caregiver and that was it for two to three years. Her life was nothing but being a caregiver for me yeah. and that, whilst that was lovely, it <laughs> put strain on both of us, both on her for having to do it and on me as the recipient because Guilt does come into it, sure. thinking I am whilst I am trying to live, I am denying somebody else a chance to live, i.e. Beth, because she has no life of her own. And everything is given up. There's no social life. There's no family life anymore because all that it is is a, a dying man and his desperate wife. Yeah. 
Well, I know it surprised me in the hospital um, after your transplant um, when you were on the respirator. So you were there, but you were knocked out <laughs> still. But the respirator, respir what, yeah. what do they call them? The respiratory tech. Yes. The breathing guy. Respirologist. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think they're the doctors. But the respiratory tech came by um, and he was saying, you know, um, in the state that your lungs were in before transplant, you were using 60% of your body's energy to breathe. Whereas normally it's, he gave me a number that was considerably smaller, let's say 8 to 10% of your energy goes into breathing. Yeah. So you're using most of your energy to breathe and you can't get up to pee even, like you were on oxygen and... You had your 25-foot leash <laughs> that attached yeah. to the oh, oxygen yeah. that, machine. But even to get up to go to the corner to use the loo took all of it out of you. And so you're not coping. And I think it occurred to me as you were just speaking that that's the way it was with caregiving. Yeah. Is the behind-the-scenes stuff that people don't see is I'm stressed. I'm in distress. You're dying. And there's, I mean, that's its whole... A hundred out of a hundred for stress watching a spouse die. And then on top of that, I'm trying to learn how to navigate a system, and we loosely call it system. It's a, the healthcare in Canada is really a number of silos loosely talking to each other, sometimes not even talking to each other. So here's another learning curve for caregivers. On top of that, then we're in charge of meal planning and prep, keeping the house hold going and then when do you work and what are the social safety nets in Canada for that zero we all know mental health care in Canada is poor um, it, it's a stressful time and you're declining physically you're declining mentally and emotionally you're declining financially you're just in this downward crashing spiral um, yeah, that we're now just starting now two years post-transplant to get a solid footing and to start building back up. Um, and maybe uh, we took longer than others because um, we lived semi-rurally before. So where we were um, was far away. Well, and, it, uh, and other people we know are even farther aflung, flung farther afield <laughs> from yeah. finding services. Um, but we were in the Comox Valley, which, you know, it has a hospital, but it doesn't do everything. No, it's um, not we really ran a trauma into trouble center. with anyway. System navigation is an issue, and the farther away you are from a major center, the more difficult your your issue is. So after transplant, it took us about a year, so three months in Vancouver for your four four, four. we did um, for rehab, and then we came home, and we were still going back to Vancouver every two weeks for checkups. Yeah. Um, so that was September, and it took us then the following April, we listed the house for sale. And so in all of this, we've also uprooted ourselves, sold our house, and moved. So when I say it took us this long to start to get our footing, we also had major life changes we needed to make in order to create a more sustainable life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, it, it essentially be prepared for the fact that if you're not fairly pretty well off at the start of this you're going to be pretty broke at the end of it yeah. so the thing is though 
like I'm alive to know that I'm broke. But, <laughs> you know, it, awesome. it, it's great. And there was a lot of times when I was having got on the transplant list and what have you, where the breathing was becoming so difficult and the, the other pains that go along with it and discomforts were so bad that I was praying that I died, it would die in my sleep. And I'm pretty sure that Beth is the caregiver was praying that I would die in my sleep too no, no, from the false. aspect of <laughs> but just from the aspect of she's seen me die and, and would constantly reach out in the night to touch me to see if I was still breathing yeah. she was so frightened that you know she would wake up and I wouldn't yeah. and you know you're on that kind of edge all the time like if I was quiet for too long she'd come and check me and if I fell asleep, she constantly touched me to make sure again that I was breathing and yeah. what have you. So it was enormously difficult for her, I would imagine, more so than me, because I just lay there basically doing nothing except to vegetate and die. Yeah. And it was bloody hard. And also, a really horrible thing was that when you can't breathe and you can't move, your bowels seize up, so you get constipated. <laughs> and even having a whiz is so difficult. And yeah, I know you can pee in a bottle, but even that, the performance of trying to sit yourself up to do that is exhausting because you're not breathing. Yeah. You're getting a tiny bit. I think they said I had about 13% of volume as opposed to 98, 99%, which most people have. Yeah. So... There was a bugger all there. I was, I looked at my driving license the other day, my old driving license from then. It said I was 53 kilos. And when I was weighed two days ago at the hospital, I was 83 kilos. So yeah. there's a bit of a difference there. That's what Beth meant when she said about my body eating my body and, and using all of my energy and reserves was going just to staying alive. So the, my body literally... Yeah. Etch itself up. There was nothing left. It was just skin and bone, and muscular atrophy sets in as well. That's right. Yeah. Well, I was just laughing at you with your saying, and then your bowels. Oh. <laughs> that's a oh, that's yeah. a issue. That's with, to do with, with the meds as well. Well, yeah, all the medications that you're on after transplant and before transplant too. I mean, you had you had drawer full of meds before. Yeah. Just the same as now, but different ones. But that's the thing is you read the side effects for these and it's, you know, the side effect is, well, it can cause constipation and diarrhea. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't know so, how that works, but... Uh, yeah, you just, yeah. Basically, you, know, but, you don't fart, yeah, you know, yeah, if yeah. kind of thing's going on. But, I mean, there's all kinds it, of things and you develop... It's a real fast lesson in, yeah, yeah. the realities of your physical body. Too. Yeah, you definitely develop the... Um, gallows humour about things that are going on and I won't tell our joke at the moment no don't I'll tell the joke tell that another time but you develop a gallows humour and you try to see something funny in virtually everything because otherwise you only see doom and gloom you know which is like hovering over you you're just yeah. waiting for a guy with a scythe to appear and, mm. and do the business um, so in all of that yeah. I'm just trying to pull us back to the Getting referred. Getting referred, Because um, yes. that's all the stuff that goes on in the background, all these things we've yeah. been talking about, right? And, and in all of that, you're trying to get yourself through this process. 
Um, so we got the referral. You were the one who was mostly on getting the referral. Yeah. Um, and prodding doctors and that sort of thing. Yeah, you're so, keeping in touch sufficiently that they're aware of you all of the time, but not so much that you become a pain in the ass to them. I mean, you, if you overdo it, they're going to think, oh, God, it's there on the phone again, or they're sending another email. You know, a bit of discretion is uh, applied in this. Yeah. Well, and that's difficult, too, because I think the piece, I mean, we've talked a lot about the mental health aspect of things, which isn't um, thus far, anyway, um, rolled into chronic care in the Canadian system. Oh, it's not acknowledged. Yeah, it's not acknowledged or helped. So... Patients are, I mean, the limit was, yeah, you, you'd probably be depressed because, you know, your life is tough. Um, here's some citalopram. Good luck. Yeah. Um, so I think for us, some of the things we did ahead of time, even while we were looking at getting referred for transplant and starting to think that, oh, yeah, maybe transplant is an option, was that we were on Facebook. So we looked on Facebook for different um, people who might have had transplants or support groups. Um, sometimes you get groups, and they're patient-led um, initiatives. So, you know, we found a lot, sort of went in and out of a few. Not all of them are, you know, ones where it's sort of your cup of tea. So yeah. you have to, it's like finding a counselor. You've got to find the right one. Um, and then I don't even think we knew about our systems lung transplant support group i think no we did we knew there was an in-person one so they run at one in person um but there's only five lung centers in canada so not everybody lives close to their hospital so what do you do if you you know and we were we were in good shape that way because we could be on the waiting list at home and then it was in vancouver and we were on vancouver island so um, for us, we didn't have to relocate to Vancouver to be on the waiting list. Some people do have to relocate. Um, but we didn't. We could stay at home, and then, um, but we couldn't attend the support group meeting. Um, and then it wasn't until after the transplant we found out that the support group patients had started a Facebook group. Um, so that's an option, too, is ask. It's People don't tell you everything. Just because there's so many details and everybody's situation is different oh, definitely. it's not like they're trying to keep you in the dark about things it's just you know there's so much to know and to have been told and also sometimes you may have been told and forgot because your brain's not really in the best shape it's ever been in when you're in distress so for sure look and see and ask if there's an online version of their support group like ours is run officially by the transplant clinic and then the Facebook one is unofficial. The patients just set it up themselves. And, you know, it's people ask questions, they jump in and over there and Yeah. And so you, there's there's you can find support. Um, and we've since started we'll plug ours. Oh yeah. Transplantroads.com. <laughs> we've since started um, um, what we're calling a social club and peer support group. And we have a video conferencing option um, so people can attend if they're not feeling well or they live far away. Um, it's meant to be a local group so that we have a community and people can, you know, if someone needs a ride, we're there to give them a ride. But by all means, it's open to anybody, really, who wants to go. So, yeah, there's more information on oh, the transport. And what site's that, then? 
the trans. I was saying it, and you you're didn't. talking over oh. me. <laughs> Transplantrogues.com. And transplantrogues is one word. Yes. But right. it's not so, reality. It is for the website. Yeah. So you got you got the referral, and then well, why don't we just stop? We've kind well, of nattered on about other issues. End but, of part one. We but will be uh, back. yeah, I guess what if somebody was thinking that they might be a candidate? What are some like two or three key pieces of advice? Contact your doctor, and immediately contact the transplant unit nearest you and find out how you go about it. Mm. Don't wait until you're at the state of you think you're about to die. Do it now, get your information now, get all of that in order and get on with it basically. I mean, it's, it, it, it is in many ways that simple, but you've yeah. got to push, you've got to do the information. They're not going to come to you and say, oh, we think you need a transplant. Yeah. You need to go to them and say, I'm dying, I need yeah. a transplant, what can you do? And, and don't minimise your situation. Well, I would, yeah, I would agree with that. Don't minimise your situation. Um, a number of people, you, you do hear stories, they do tend to fall into one of two categories. Either somebody was really ill and um, they showed up and the doctor says, oh my God, you need a transplant, let's get this started. Um, and in that case, you're probably dealing with a doctor who has had some experience referring patients to transplant um, because transplant is becoming more common. I think part of our issue was you started to ask about transplant when it wasn't as well known as it is yeah, now. Yeah. And it's only in a matter of a couple of years things have changed. Um, yeah. Or you have a doctor who doesn't understand how to do a referral and in that case um, we have a workbook for transplant patients and one of the key pieces of learning we had was go to your transplant authority's website, consider yourself deputized, click on the for medical professionals tab <laughs> and go there because they often have the, there'll be um, a list of the criteria, who, what kind of patients um, do we take and here's the referral form. And if you need to print the referral form and plunk it in front of your doctor, do it. So if the more proactive you can be about learning the system and making things smoother for your doctors and healthcare professionals to access the system themselves, do it. Okay. Um, yeah, again, remembering that, you know, we encountered hurdles and people who poo-pooed us, but I think the poo-pooing came because they just didn't understand the system and didn't want to ask questions or for whatever reason. Yeah. So sometimes, yeah, you've got to take the bull by the horns. So until this time next week, <laughs> <laughs> or as so, they say on Law and Order, Sergeant Joe has entered the room, we're <laughs> closing the tape. <laughs> Do they say that on Law I don't know, order? say something like that. No, they don't. Okay. <laughs> I, know you can edit. I know you can edit this. Yeah, you will. Okay, ta -ra. Oh, you mean it was live?